This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Well, I hope you are having a great week. I cannot tell you how much I am enjoying this podcast series, Who is My Neighbor? I wanted to share with you some messages I received about it so far. Anna said, I listened to the latest episode. Thank you so much for it. I cannot wait for the rest of this series. Cheryl said, Heather, this episode was so good. I learned so much. Thank you for doing this pod class. You know, throughout the rest of this series, we are going to focus on marginalized voices in Christianity and also how we can be a better neighbor and fulfill the invitation of Christ by stopping for people, by listening to their stories, and by seeing them as fellow image bearers of Jesus Christ. Today, we get to go to episode two of our four-part series. But first, it's time for Social Toolkit. This is where we discuss practical tips and best practices for entering the chat. Today, we get to talk to the man, the myth, the legend, Brady Shearer. Brady Shearer is the director of Pro Church Tools and church software platform, Nucleus, His work focuses on helping churches navigate the biggest communication shift in 500 years. Okay, Brady, I saw you make a post where you said social media is a ministry. It's not just a vehicle to promote ministry. Okay, this is Viral Jesus. You know we love this post. Tell us more. Why do you say social media is ministry? What do you mean when you say that? Sure. So at our company, we always say we're living through the biggest communication shift in 500 years. And I was born in 91. You know, growing up, we wanted to encounter biblical preaching. We wanted to engage in spiritual practice uh, communally. If we wanted to uh, do any number of ministry activities within church, it required us going to the building and meeting up. But nowadays, because of the internet, there are 168 hours in your week. One, perhaps, is dedicated to in-person service. There are 167 hours beyond that where you can engage your community, engage people outside of your four walls, and fulfill your church's mission beyond your building. And, And that's what I mean by this is ministry. At the end of the day, our churches have a mission that we exist to fulfill. And we do in-person activities to help 
fulfill that mission. There are also online activities that mm. we can do to fulfill that mission. I got a DM from a church um, this week and they said, hey, can you check out our social accounts? Like I am really trying, but no one is really engaging with our content. No one's sharing, no one's liking. Like, what do you see? And so I go to this church's, this page on Instagram and I went through like their previous 10 posts and it was youth group promotion. It was upcoming sermon series promotion. It was uh, potluck promotion. And it was 10 different promos in a row that were just like time and date saying, hey, we're doing a thing in person. We are we as a church care about life change and, and we're going to do a thing in person to help affect that. So come to us. And I said to this church in response, I said, look, there's no reason that anyone within your church would share this content or interact right. with this content. Not because what you're promoting isn't useful or valuable, but this isn't how social platforms operate. This isn't what people right. come on these social platforms to do. And so the other angle of this is if you're going to spend time on social, if you're going to invest creative energy and resources as an individual, as a church, as a ministry, you want that time to be effective. You want like return on that creative and time investment that you're putting in. So then you also have to understand what is going to align with your church's mission when it comes to fulfilling that mission using these online platforms. And so the simple way to say that is look at social media as a tool to fulfill ministry and not just to promote ministry. So we have this thing called the one in five rule. So I'm not saying you should never promote, but so long as no more than 20% of your posts, one out of every five are promotional in nature, mm -hmm. th then you're going to be pretty good. At that point, most of the content that you're publishing is going to be useful and relevant to the folks that choose to follow you. And so you won't be like burning out their attention and just finding yourself, oh, no one's seeing our content. Yeah, because a long time ago, the algorithms saw how people responded and right, hey, people are not enjoying this type of content. Don't show your people any more of it. And that's the other part. Let's say you really do want to use social to promote. Well, you then have to work really hard in those other four out of five posts mm. to earn attention to show up in people's feeds so that when you do promote the upcoming event that, hey, if you say is more important than what you're doing online, that's totally fine with me. If that's true, you need to use social in such a way so that when you do promote, people are ready to respond. People do see that post and they are willing to take a next step towards Jesus. See your social media as a ministry, not just a way to promote ministry. Thank you so much, Brady, for helping us navigate our social toolkit. Today, we get to sit down with someone I met in an author group many, many years ago. I am a big fan of her work and I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend, Karen Gonzalez. Karen Gonzalez is a speaker, she's a writer, she's a storyteller and immigrant advocate who herself immigrated from Guatemala as a child. Karen is a former public school teacher and attended Fuller Theological Seminary, where she studied theology and missiology. For the last 13 years, she has been a nonprofit professional, currently working for an organization based in Baltimore, Maryland, that serves refugees and other immigrants. Her latest book is called Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. This conversation really was a catalyst for me on seeing scripture in a more beautiful way. So I love to do the social media digging before I have a guest on. And here's a tweet that I found from you, Karen. You said this, 
Stop telling child-free people that without kids, no one will take care of us when we are old. Research has shown that the best care in old age is having money and community, both of which you can have without children. That tweet got nearly 6,000 likes. So clearly a lot of people really resonated with what you said. Can you talk to us about maybe what you were feeling? What inspired you when you wrote that? Sure. Well, partially it was, you know, as I became a follower of Jesus, that was serious when I made my faith my own as a college student. I felt like we were always either explicitly or implicitly told that the highest calling was to be a wife and mother. And this is still a teaching that's out there. Uh, mm-hmm. rather than what I believe to be the truth, which is the highest calling is to be a disciple, Amen. to be a student of Jesus. And a few months ago when I tweeted that out, there was again a lot of men in particular who are from kind of extreme conservative spaces that were saying all these people you know, that are childless are choosing a life without meaning, a life without raising disciples and without anyone who will take care of them, any sense of family that they will have as they grow older. And of course, this is not true. We see this even if you think about people like Jesus or John the Baptist or Paul. These are men who were single. Mary Magdalene, Mm -hmm. also rumored to have been single her whole life. And these are people who devoted themselves to their calling right, to what God put them on the earth to do and fulfilled that calling. And sometimes it was very costly. Mm. And sometimes they lived to old age in community with Christians, as we know a lot of people did. And so I really wanted to address that. And to be honest, a lot of the people who work in retirement homes and nursing homes are immigrant women particularly from the Caribbean, from Africa, the Philippines, uh, from Latin America. These are the people caring for our elders in nursing homes and retirement centers. And without children, they will still take care of you because this is what they're doing and what they have been doing every day. And so, yeah, that's what really prompted me to tweet that out. And I was really moved by it. And I think something that is striking to me even listening to you unravel it here. A part of this podcast actually is with Terry Wildman, um, who did the um, native language translation of the Bible. And when they translated into the native language, the word church, he put like family of God or God family, which is interesting because if people are saying, oh, without a nuclear family, you don't have people to take care of you. It, it is in some ways anti-gospel, which means because in the gospel, literally you're supposed to be part of a family of God where we care for one another. And that's what we see yes. in the New Testament, which was radical to the culture. Yeah, people who start out as complete strangers and end up becoming the family of God and taking care of each other like family. So yeah. What a concept. You moved to the States at the age of 10 years old. So before we get into kind of our pod class, I just want people to understand where are you coming from as you write a book like Beyond Welcome? Um, What was that move like, that transition for you? 
Well, you know, in the beginning, it's really exciting to think about moving to a new place and traveling there and... You know, the newness of things can be really exciting initially. You can anticipate it with a lot of eagerness. But then quickly, of course, you fall into the day-to-day ordinary of life. And then the things that are difficult become really huge challenges in front of you. So being in class and not speaking English, knowing very, very little English, And not understanding kind of the social norms of Mm. school uh, in the U.S., which are very different from school in Latin America. And not knowing how to navigate a new neighborhood. You know, we came from living in Guatemala in, you know, a middle class kind of existence where we played with kids in our neighborhood to all of a sudden we're in a very marginalized community in LA and we're not allowed to go outside and play because it's not a safe neighborhood. We live on a major street. Mm. And so life just became really small and really difficult in so many ways. And so the only thing that was good was math because math is the same, you know, in every language, Mm. but in everything else, everything was difficult and different. My parents who used to be around and we used to have like a live-in housekeeper that was also our nanny who had, you know, lived with us since we were really little kids. She was gone and all of a sudden we're in this house where all the adults are working all the time. Mm. So we're just by ourselves a lot and didn't see our parents that much. My mom worked like an overnight shift because it was the easiest shift to get because nobody wanted it. Mm. Uh, to do these overnight um, care for elderly people mm. as a home healthcare worker. And my dad worked at a hotel and he worked this shift that was like 3 to 11. So we never saw him either. You know, he came, he left as we were coming home and mm. was home after we were already asleep. So it, yeah, life just became really challenging. And I think even more so for my parents, at least our job was just to learn English Mm. But for them, they went from having community at work, from being professionals, to all of a sudden working in custodial work, uh, working in home health care work, where you didn't need any credentials. And don't get me wrong, all of this work is good, honest work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they were used to being professionals and mm-hmm. to having community at work. And now it was just a very lonely job. I remember my dad saying that his first task of the day was to go around the hotel because it was the hotel by Disneyland in LA. Mm. And he was picking up garbage, you know, with a stick. And, you know, he has a college education, but he doesn't speak English. Mm. And so this is what you do. So yeah, life was really difficult for a long time. And I think it was longer for our parents even because there's a Mm. point at which you're a child and you become bicultural eventually. But for an adult who moved to another country in their 30s, this is not an easy task. And so, yeah, it was a very difficult time. And when I think back on it, it just feels very lonely and very isolating. And I'll say I teach at the most diverse university in the nation. And so, and one of the courses I teach is intercultural communication. And it's never 
lost on me. And these are college students who have, many of them have been in this country since, I mean, maybe even infancy or three years old, fairly young. And I always hear what you just described, but also this deep sense of just the cultural difference, especially for my students from Latin America, Asia, um, and Africa, where the communal feel that they experience in their culture. One example, I know I had a student that would say, every time you pass somebody, I'm trying to remember where he was from. I think it was Cameroon. And he said, every time you pass somebody, you greet them again. That's like just showing respect. You're acknowledging their existence. And so even if I walk by your office five times, I'm just going to acknowledge you every single time. And then to come to the United States where everything's so busy, stranger danger, I'm not talking. So it's like the coldness that often a lot of my students feel was really surprising to me as somebody who has grown up here and has just always been in that coldness. Did, would you describe it that way as well? Definitely. I, I remember one of the first things that really confused me was I was told by an American, when you walk by someone, a teacher actually told me this, when you walk by someone and you walk very close to them, you say, excuse me. And I said, but why? I'm not touching them. <laughs> She's like, because you came into their personal space. And I'm like, wow. but I didn't touch them. I just passed them in the grocery aisle or, or something, you know? They're like, but you have to say, excuse me. And to me, I was like, can I say hello? Can I say something else? Wow. <laughs> She's like, no, you say, excuse me, because you entered their personal space. And this was something really challenging because that didn't exist in my right. culture. This sense of like, you can't get too close to people. And I definitely experienced that, that sense of you don't, there are rules about the, how you engage people. Um, I remember somebody when I was like in high school letting me know, you can't drop in on people. I'd just been driving, you know, and I was a new driver and I dropped in on a friend. And I remember him telling me later, you can't drop in on people. You have to call them and make an appointment <laughs> or, you know, make a, make a date, right? Make a... Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like, because it's cause considered really, really rude to just drop in on people. And I was like, oh, we do this all the time. We do this to uh, our neighbors. <laughs> right. Right. And here, like, to our own family. Mm-hmm. Don't just show up. It's so fascinating. Our pod class that we're doing right now is a series called Who Is My Neighbor?, So when I say that phrase to you, obviously a reference to the New Testament, um, what would your response be based on scripture to somebody who says, yeah, but who is is really my neighbor? Yeah. I thought about this a lot, you know, with uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a Good Samaritan hospital in my Mm. city, not too far away from here. And this phrase, Good Samaritan, has just become so ubiquitous in our Mm. culture, right? The idea that the word good and the word Samaritan go together. But this was actually a deeply uncomfortable and unsettling pair of words in the New Testament, right? And I was explaining to my nieces once, I said, it's as if, I said, you have um, an American soldier who's wounded Mm -hmm. by the side of the road and you have a an evangelical pastor walk by, but he's busy. He'd like to help, but he has to get somewhere. And then you have maybe a Catholic bishop walk mm-hmm. by, right? And he's also got somewhere to be and doesn't help him, even though they're all Americans. And then you have Osama bin Laden walk by, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's the one that helps the American soldier. And of course, this is just 
shocking, right? The idea of someone who's considered an enemy of the United mm-hmm. States being the one who would in particular help a wounded soldier. And it's certainly not a story from real life, but I think it's a good illustration of how mm. uncomfortable and provocative that story is supposed to be. The person who is your neighbor is even the person you might consider an enemy, a person mm. you might think of as, no, that's not a person I would ever help. And my nieces, you know, they're little girls. They're 11. And they said to me, wait, so is that like if Donald Trump were by the side of the road, I would have to help him? Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, they're thinking as little girls of color uh-huh. that the, here is someone who has demonized our community of immigrants mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. has said that, you know, we're the, called us terrible names and infestation, all kinds of things. But according to the Bible, our neighbor is anyone with whom we share humanity. Wow. Even when it's not a person we want to help, mm-hmm. or even if we have all kinds of reasons why mm. this is not a person that we want near us. And to me, I think that idea has significant implications because when I think about immigration, the number one thing people want to know mm. is, do I have to help someone who's undocumented? Let's go there. Let's go into your book. I want everybody who is listening to this right now to know Karen Gonzalez is a fantastic writer. I have a question for you later about The God Who Sees, just because I want people to get that book too. We're going to do a two-book purchase today. But also your new book, Beyond Welcome. What made you want to write this book? So as I was going around speaking about immigration, I found that there were a lot of people who said, oh yeah, totally. I care about immigrants. I believe in our shared humanity and they're made in the image of God and and I support that. I don't have any issue with that. And that seems to be the end of the conversation for a lot of people. And to me, this was a little bit troubling because I think that's a little bit like if you were to plant roots in a driveway. Well, you don't Mm. do that. (laughs) You go all the way inside the house, right? into the backyard. You don't just stay at the very beginning of a discourse and never really go beyond that. And yet with immigration, a lot of people get stuck at, well, I already welcome, so I'm all set. Mm. And we have to move beyond that. We have to move into solidarity Mm. and into kinship and to advocacy together. And so I really wanted to write this book to help us all wrestle with all of those ideas and to move us along in our growth and discipleship. And so that's what prompted the writing of this book. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And 
When you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. The Bible, if we look at it from an immigrant lens, we would see that it's actually filled with stories of immigrants. So many of our biblical heroes are immigrants to a foreign land. We have Joseph, Abraham, Ruth. What do you think the church can learn from positioning themselves to see these biblical stories, the very people that we're teaching about to remind us and inspire us of who God is, what could we learn from seeing these same stories as stories of immigrants and not just Bible characters? Well, I think the most important thing we would learn from that is that when we read the Bible, we are not Joseph in the Bible. We are not Ruth in the Bible (laughs) because they were Mm -hmm. the foreign person, the marginalized person, And so we are really Mm. Egypt in the story of Joseph, Potiphar, Pharaoh. In the story of Ruth, we are the person who has power. We are Mm -hmm. the people of Bethlehem. We are the people like Boaz, who is a native citizen with power and with rights. Mm. And so I think what would really help us to recognize these stories of migration in the Bible is one, we have to locate ourselves correctly in the story. And often in the American church, we have been wrong when we have always positioned ourselves as the underdogs, as the poor, as the marginalized. And maybe, you know, at the very founding of the United States, you could make a case for that. But now Mm -hmm. the United States is an empire, And there is no room to say, no, we're the marginalized community of the Bible. That's not who we are. We are Rome, Babylon, Egypt. And it's important that we recognize ourselves correctly in the story. Because otherwise, we read something like a story about Jesus and a rich man, and we think, Mm -hmm. well, I'm not the rich person. (laughs) I'm you know, Mary Magdalene, not Pontius Pilate. I'm Mm -hmm. Esther. I'm not Haman. I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a real repentance and change of course that can happen when we recognize ourselves correctly. Like when we recognize, no, I am Mm. part of this empire. I'm the one doing the oppressing. Joseph is represented by immigrants, let's say, in the borderlands right? He's represented Mm. by people like Emmett Till, unjustly accused and then suffers this horrible consequence, right? Someone who is um, poor, whose rights are taken away. Mm. Who is that in our country right now, right? And so I think that is really critical for us. And we have to learn to read the Bible differently than we've been taught because 
if we do that, we'll see that real persecution is not someone saying Merry mm-hmm. Christmas or Happy Holidays or any anything like that. Real persecution is what mm-hmm. some people are suffering mm-hmm. going under a barbed wire fence or a wall keeping them from finding safety and freedom or someone who's unsafe because mm-hmm. their neighborhood is over-policed, someone who's unhoused because... Mm-hmm. The price of housing has soared and people can can no longer afford in certain areas of the country to even live. And so it's important to locate ourselves correctly because then we read the Bible through, a, I think, a, a better lens than the ones we've been given. And so what would your response be then? Because I'm sure I, I can think of people, even as you're talking, who would say, what, no, I'm an exile. In Babylon, maybe America, but I'm an, my Christianity has made me an exile in this land. My faith is so foreign to the rest of the culture. What would you say to that? You know, it's important for each person to sit in the presence of the Holy Spirit and really ask themselves, well, when I say I am a Christian, am I going to be thrown in prison for mm. that? Am I going to be treated differently? When I see a person wearing a hijab, what assumptions do I make about them? You know, I I didn't know anything about what it's like for Muslims in Mm -hmm. this country until I had a a roommate who was Egyptian and wore a hijab. And she was actually assaulted on the streets of Baltimore just walking to work um, because someone, you know, called her a slur and told her to go back to her country and I never realized that having a hijab isn't just an expression of her culture, but it puts a target mm-hmm. on her back. But if I mm. say, Merry Christmas, am I going to be slapped by anyone or harmed by anyone? I think there are certain questions that we have to be honest with ourselves. And I say with ourselves because, let's face it, when we're put on the spot by someone, we're not going to change. Um, and if we're attacked by people or called names we're not going to change either. But the Holy Spirit is gentle. Yeah. And we're in the presence of love, right? Of God's love and God's care. And I love the way that the prophets in the Bible would call the people back because it was always like, I have this really hard word for you, but it's because I love Mm -hmm. you and because I want you to return to me. This was God's message through the prophets. And and I think that's what the Holy Spirit can do for us today as well, if we're willing to really sit with that and be honest. And so I understand the world has changed, and that can be really scary. The world has changed, and globalization has taken over. A lot of jobs have gone overseas, and this is terrifying to a lot of mm-hmm. people. And I completely understand that. What I don't have a lot of compassion for is just blaming then uh, a group of people Mm. for this. Because if you're going to blame anyone, you can blame the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm. (laughs) You can blame the political leaders who allowed all these companies to go overseas where the labor is much Mm -hmm. cheaper because there isn't as much regulation and labor laws. That's really who's responsible for some of what's happened, right? Technology is also responsible, but who are we going to blame, right, for so many jobs being replaced by technology? Even 
go into the grocery store now. You have to scan your own <laughs> groceries or wait in this line right. forever, right? Even that has changed. It used to be when I was growing up, there was a cashier in every register and there was never any self-checkout. But even that has gone away and you'll find maybe two open registers at the store, which means they can employ fewer workers, right? So there's lots of things that have changed our world that put people in economic peril. And I understand wanting to look for what is responsible for this. And our leaders have scapegoated immigrants, Mm -hmm. right? But we have to ask ourselves, is this really true? Um, Or what, what has happened that has caused this? Because blaming another set of human beings, ones who are in an extremely vulnerable situation, to me just doesn't make any sense. Um, especially given the fact that we have more jobs than we have people at the moment. They're just not jobs that make a sustainable wage for people to live on without a lot of extra support. And that is unjust Mm -hmm. and terrible, but also not the fault of immigrants, right? And so I understand that. And that's why I always tell people, whatever you believe about immigration, make sure that if you're a Christian, it's been informed by your faith, not by the media, not by your family, not by the peer group that you're a part of right now. But are you sure of what God really says mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this? And be honest with yourself in the presence of God. And so that's what I, I encourage people to do. I know it's hard to hear that um, this idea of I'm being persecuted is what's often promoted mm-hmm. in the church at the moment. But we have to be honest about what is persecution really when we think about, for example, the church in Egypt. There's a very small church right now in Egypt that's a remnant, an old, old community, and they literally lose their lives. Um, my friend who was Egyptian was telling me that, you know, Christians are treated so poorly. They don't, they're not given good health care, access to good housing. Uh, they're not given jobs. That's real persecution when you can't even make a living, when you live in fear for your life. Is it persecution to feel like, for example, um, if you would like to do something in the public sphere and you're told that you can't? So, for example, there are people who oppose Mm same-sex marriage and would like for it not to be legal, I understand that idea of you've been, you feel a conviction about this being wrong, but are you really being persecuted because gay people have Mm. this right? What is exactly being taken away Mm. from you? Are you still free to marry a person of the Mm -hmm. opposite sex? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is someone taking away your job because, you know, you're a Christian person who's conservative? Probably not. And if it is happening, Mm. it's illegal, right? So I think we have to define the terms a little bit differently. There is othering that people can experience. Right. You know, it's just like, um, you know, I have a friend who's a white Latina. So if you saw her, you would think she was a white woman, but she's really Mexican. But she says, I don't experience uh, xenophobia or racism. I experience othering. Mm. People will, you know, think that I'm white and culturally I'm not, but I still experience all the privileges of, of being mm. white. Right. And I think it's the very same thing with being a Christian in our Mm. country. Yes, there are some times we can experience othering, 
or a sense of exclusion because we have certain beliefs that maybe a lot of people don't hold. But is that the same as persecution? Mm. One of my friends, I, I had her guest lecture for my Christian conservative college campus a few years ago. And she did the film Chicago Girl about um, her organizing from her house in Chicago, rebel protests in Syria. Um, her name's Ala Basatne. And she, after 2016, she was threatened with a knife. And so she hasn't worn her hijab since then as a Muslim woman. And that was just a moment, I think, for my class and myself where we did ask that question to ourselves of, okay, that persecution feels a lot different. That I can't walk down the street representing my faith that I believe is so valuable and important to me as a free woman anymore. That's a very different experience. So I really appreciated what you just described. In The God Who Sees, what led you to write that book? And did you feel like this book was like a second part? Did, did writing that book lead you to do this book or are they two totally different books? Yes, I, I think they're part one and part two. Okay, okay. <laughs> Kind of like Luke acts, yeah. um, <laughs> perhaps less weighty than that. <laughs> but yes, yeah. Um, in the, the first book that I wrote, um, so I was working for this evangelical organization that serves refugees and other immigrants, and I was going to churches in the Baltimore, DC, you know, Northern Virginia area, talking to people. Uh, to churches and Sunday school classes about God's heart for immigrants. And what I started to notice is just that a lot of the books and materials were written by people who were white, mm -hmm. and they were very good materials. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think there is a place for the advocacy that all of us can do. Mm -hmm. So I'm not against those books in any way. But I thought there was a place for people who have the lived experience of displacement to also... Yep tell our stories. Mm. Um, and so I wasn't seeing a lot of that, even though I knew a lot of people who were, you know, uh, Black immigrants, Asian immigrants, Latino immigrants who were doing advocacy in D.C. on, you know, for our own communities. And so that's really what led me. I complained about it a lot. And um, my <laughs> sister, um, my sister and I, my brother-in-law, we went to see Hamilton in New York because it's only three hours north of here. And after we left, I told her, you know, I love the way that he tells the story of the founding of America, but from the perspective of this mm. poor outsider. Mm. And that's not the story we've heard, you right. know? And I said, I learned things from this that I didn't know. Like, I feel like school taught me that um, a bunch of farmers with pitchforks ended up defeating a major global superpower <laughs> of right. the English army. But no, actually, the French had a lot to do with it. <laughs> uh, and so they had support that it just doesn't emphasize in our education, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and you tell this, this story about this triumphant, you know, sort of David Goliath kind of story, where actually it was more like France versus England, <laughs> two big global superpowers. And so I told her, I said, I really appreciate just the nuance he brought to the story and just the way that, you know, the imagination that he had about it, where he cast people of color in all of these roles, you know. Yeah. Um, like, I really enjoyed it from that perspective. And I thought, 
you know, this is the voice that's missing in this conversation is I just, I'm not reading a lot by us, for us. And so that's what led me to write that book. And I wanted to write about immigrants in the Bible. And the biggest pushback I get on that book is that people don't believe immigration is in the Bible. (laughs) And they really, yeah, it really bothers them. Um, They will say things to me like, I just think you're reading an agenda into the Bible. And, you know, I said, I don't know what to tell you. I said, because I see real movement of people in the Bible. Right. And it's for the same reason people have always moved. Right. You know, famine is a big reason in the Bible. War is a big reason in the Mm -hmm, Bible. mm -hmm. And then also calling is a reason in the Bible. You know, you have Mm. Abraham who migrates because God calls him to do so. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think people have been ingrained with the idea of the way that these stories were presented to them. Like, for example, the story of Ruth. It's a story of migration. First, Naomi and her family migrate. Then mm-hmm. she and Ruth, a foreign woman, migrate back. There's a lot of migration in the story. But people insist to me that this story is a story of Boaz. And that Boaz is a kind of Christ figure. And that is the story. And I said, okay, are there other stories within this story? <laughs> um, is it all, can it also be a story about these two widows, one a foreign woman who move um, to Bethlehem and have to survive on the margins of society? You know, because is it also that story? No. It's not that story. <laughs> so, and also, can I just say it's called Ruth? Yeah, like the book is called Ruth. So I'm gonna. Yeah. I th- I just think we gotta acknowledge that there is there's no book of Boaz. Yes, there's no book of That's Boaz, okay. and his role in the story is very minor. I mean, it's important mm-hmm. in the fact that he takes care of her. Yes, and we appreciate it. But the story is about Ruth and her devotion to Naomi. Right, and Boaz. I think the good things that you can say about him, you know, he is a good character in the story and he does obey God's law and he goes into obeying the spirit of the law mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. just the letter. And he is a very honorable and good person who knows that you can use power for good. Yes. And that is amazing and wonderful, but it doesn't mean that the story is about him right. as a central character. He's a supporting character. Right in that story. And so, but, you know, the way these stories have been taught to so many of us is there's only one way to look at Mm. it. And it's interesting because, you know, I was a high school English teacher. That was my first, that was my Mm. first life. And, and one of the things you teach kids, right, is to look at different themes and stories, to look at the point of view. All of these things are really important and we apply them to all other kinds of reading. But for some reason, we think the Bible is exempt from reading it in a way that, you know, we use critical thinking to approach it and we look at different viewpoints. It's almost as if people believe it fell from heaven one day and to ask Mm -hmm, any questions mm -hmm. of it is a mortal sin of some kind rather Mm. than a living, active document that is revealing God's self to us, right? Karen, I... Love you. I love this conversation. I love your writing. And I genuinely hope 
people will buy your book beyond welcome. You can get it right now. I I am never offended. Pause the episode. Order the book this very second and you can have it hopefully in your hands in the next few days. Karen, my tagline this season for Viral Jesus is to encourage people to enter the chat. At a time when I do personally feel like social media, and I'm somebody who loves social media, but I feel like there's just so many negatives um, that have been surrounding it lately, that at Viral Jesus, I want to encourage people to take ownership of how they are personally using communication, both online and off. How do you choose to be a redemptive voice in the online space? Sure. So I try to use my voice and I'm not always successful, and I want your listeners to know that if you fail, it's a lot like the first pancake. Just start again. Go to the next pancake. (laughs) (laughs) The first one sometimes doesn't turn out. It's okay. But my goal is to have conversations and to Mm. elicit engagement and to sometimes let people know things that they might not know. Um, Mm. And sometimes I'll just share a, a link Sometimes I'll share a quote and sometimes I'll share, like today, for example, the only tweet I've done today has to do with um, the idea that we need to stop talking about people as the vulnerable and instead say people who are in vulnerable situations because Mm. we don't want to call people the vulnerable as if that's their whole identity They've been put in a vulnerable situation, but they're still image bearers mm. of God. They have gifts and talents and skills and callings, and we need to reflect that back to them rather than seeing them just as vulnerable, if that makes sense. So that's the way that I try to use it. I have made a lot of friendships online, particularly with other Christians of color. And so that's been, for me, a great way to use social media is to build connections that can then also exist outside of the internet. So Karen Gonzalez is the author of Beyond Welcome. You can get this book wherever books are sold. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. So what can we learn from our conversation with Karen Gonzalez? Karen Gonzalez went from having a live-in nanny and parents who she saw regularly to being alone a lot when she immigrated to the States and parents who had to work a lot and couldn't afford a nanny. Karen's dad picked up trash outside a hotel even though he had a college degree. So many immigrants are working so hard to give their families opportunities they wouldn't have had, and they deserve our respect. Number two, in our culture, it is normal to hear good Samaritan. Good Samaritan, that's a normal phrase that you might encounter somebody saying, we don't think anything of it. But today, Karen reminds us that Jesus was making a radically racial and hierarchical statement when he said those words together, good and Samaritan. The question is not just who is my neighbor, but also who is my enemy? Who's supposed to be my enemy? It's uncomfortable to be honest 
about this story. Number three, we have to locate ourselves correctly in the story of migration in the Bible. If we don't recognize ourselves, and I'm talking about those of us who are living in the United States, as being a country of great power, wealth, and often injustice, we will not see clearly what Jesus is trying to communicate in the gospel. We will, Karen said, align ourselves with the wrong people in the story. Often for those of us in the U.S., we are not Israel. We are Egypt. And how does that change how we pursue to live a godly Christian life toward our neighbors? Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Next week, we'll sit down for part three of our pod class, Who Is My Neighbor? I am joined next week, by the way, by two of the authors, from Voices of Lament. Oh, you're going to love that conversation. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.